evening, friends. This is Franz Weinschenk, your host on Valley Writers Read, welcoming you to another edition of our weekly program, which consists of stories written and read by Valley authors. And tonight, a fascinating trip down a mythical highway invented by a teenager who happens to be caught in the middle of her parents' extremely volatile divorce. The teenager calls her highway Route 18, and that's the title of our story, Route 18, written by Fresno author Craig Bernthal, a writer we've had on before. Here he is, Craig Bernthal reading Route 18. Well, I love a rainy night, I love a rainy night. I love to hear the thunder, watch the lightning when it lights up the sky. You know it makes me feel good. Well, I love the rainy night, it's such a beautiful sight. I love to feel the rain on my face, taste the rain on my legs. In the moonlight shadows. Showers wash all my cares away. I wake up to a sunny day Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night Route 18 from Perfection and Bad Axe I'm on Route 18 again, the only coast-to-coast, one-way highway in the United States of America. Two lanes, but not a lot of traffic. It starts in New Jersey and ends in Northern California. You can get off Route 18, onto gravel roads, or into little cities that have one or two gas stations, a motel, and a burger joint. But the roads that leave 18 always circle back, so there's really no getting off it. I don't know what's at the end. Maybe a parking lot the size of Rhode Island. The dashed white line that divides Route 18 is pretty faded. In the daytime, it's just a lighter shade of gray than the road, obscured by tar and the marks of skidding tires. On a wet night, with your headlights splashing off oil and water, you can't even tell it's there. Mainly, Route 18 is way out in the country. It doesn't cross any main roads, but snakes its way under and over them in tunnels and bridges. It goes over the whole top of St. Louis, even the Freedom Arch, like a ribbon in the sky. Sometimes I drive Route 18 at night, a thunderstorm off in the distance in a small town ahead, with one seedy motel and a church nobody goes to anymore. A tattered old grain elevator leans against the stars. There's a diner there where a few old, gristly men and a sleazy waitress listen to Johnny Cash on the jukebox. The stools at the counter are covered in cracked green vinyl patched with duct tape, and dirty ashtrays litter the counter and the tables. The old men joke and chuckle, phlegm rising in their throats. The smell of chicken pot pie mixes with cigarette smoke. And now it's a sunny morning on Route 18. Bright cotton clouds pile up on themselves, and winter wheat, just pushing up, sparkles green against the black soil. I could drive for hours. The top is down on my convertible, and the wind blows my hair straight back like the tail of a comet. I'm 16, and I have a license to drive anywhere. Dr. Singbot Gruel is a tall, chocolate-colored psychiatrist from India. Everything he says comes out like a question. How nice to see you again? I've been seeing him since seventh grade, when my mother saw a TV show about teen suicide and decided I was depressed. That was over three years ago. A big stack of files rests at his elbow, 
and he has just pulled mine off the top. He stares at my file with a puzzled expression, trying to remember who I am. So how are things going now, Linda? He asks vaguely as his eyes soften to kind receptiveness. I can practically hear the screech of machinery as his pupils widen and the corners of his mouth go up. Oh, fine, I say. Hmm, he says, groping. Are you sleeping well? Sometimes. Only sometimes? I wake up around two or three, and then I can't get back to sleep for a few hours, sometimes. The possible side effects of Paxil, alias paroxetine, are nausea, drowsiness, sweating, tremor, a feeling of numbness, dizziness, dry mouth, and insomnia. I looked it up on the Internet. I don't think I have any of these, but the stuff makes me feel jumpy, which I think is different than having a tremor. When I started taking the stuff, Dr. Gruel told my mom and me that there were no side effects. So I tell him, I feel jumpy. Sometimes I can't sleep. You need more exercise, he says, switching to a more imperative Indian father mode. I'm on the volleyball team, the marching band. You should run, too. Running is good for you. When he says good, it comes out like good. He sounds like he's using his tongue to stir a batch of brownies. It makes endorphins. These are the chemicals your body produces to make you feel good. I know what endorphins are, and serotonin and all that stuff. He mentions them every time I come in. I've read about depression and panic attacks, which are what he thinks I've got. Are you socializing with people more, not hiding in your room? Yes to both, I say. He looks confused. Yes, I'm not hiding in my room. I couldn't hide in my room if I wanted to, since at Mom's, I now have to share my room with my little half-sister Eileen, and at Dad's and Martha's, I share it with my other little twin half-sisters, Karen and Lori. How about boys? Are you interested in boys? Not much, I say. He nods his head, smiling. Plenty of time for boys later. Now it is the time for you to study, so you can get into a good college. How is schoolwork going? All A's, I say. He beams at me, as if I could almost make the grade as an Indian daughter. That is very good. We will raise your doses of Paxil from 30 to 50 milligrams a day and see if that helps you to sleep. He goes into the waiting room to get my mother. When she comes in, he asks her the same questions he asked me, and she gives the same answers but doesn't say anything about how nervous I can get. Mom doesn't rat me out unless pressure is applied. Mom and Dad have joint custody of me, so every two weeks I switch homes, enabling me to experience a broader range of dysfunctional family life. I'd like to escape, but my dad won't let me sleep over at my best friend's anymore. He says Kathy is a bad influence. My mother and Leonard won't let me do it either. When I ask, Mom gets this wounded expression on her face and says, You spend so much time with your father. I get to see so little of you. I just want to keep you to myself when you're here. That doesn't stop her from going out with Leonard and leaving me with the two little kids to babysit. But when she and Leonard leave for the Outback Steakhouse and a movie, the first thing I do is call Kathy. Kathy comes over and brings the latest issue of Seventeen with her. Dad won't let me get Seventeen. He says it's for sluts, which most high school girls are. Kathy says we're already too old for it, even though we're only 16, and she's right. The articles are pretty stupid, but we look at the advertisements and giggle. This time they've got an article about kissing. Approach vectors, 
synchronization, contact, how long to hang in there, what can go wrong. The article should be entitled Air Traffic Control. I haven't kissed a boy yet, even as an experiment, because until now there hasn't been anyone I've wanted to. The boys who go to my high school look like they've jumped into a pile of dirty laundry and swum up wearing clothes two or three sizes too big. They carry an aroma of old sweat and mold. I am a sophomore, so I have two and a half more years of this to look forward to. Still, a lot of girls have gone way far past kissing, and Kathy and I sometimes feel we need remediation. Do you still want to talk to the judge about not living with your father, Kathy asks, after we're done laughing at the kissing article? I don't know, I say, sometimes. But then I come here and I don't want to be here either. It's too bad we can't just run away, Kathy says. Why should you want to run away? You've got nice parents. They let you do things. They drop you off at school and pick you up. Your dad even goes to movies with you. I wish my dad would do that. Sometimes I just think I want to get away, Kathy says, so I could just live the way I want to. Nobody telling me to clean up my room. I could just let everything pile up a foot deep. It's already a foot deep. Okay, then, she says, two feet. Really, Kathy's room is utter chaos. Leonard and Dad would both kill me if my room got like that. I lied to Dr. Gruel about boys. There is one, sort of. Gustav, not his real name, spikes his hair with egg whites and bleaches the spikes only far enough down so that you can definitely see the roots are black. You'd expect him to smell like a rotten egg by three, but he doesn't. His real name is Jason Dulgy, but in French class we have French names. I'm Camille. And that's where he asked me, French class. He just said, Mon chéri, can I be your boyfriend? He's one of the biggest clowns in class, so I assume he's just fitting me into his comedy routine. My father won't let me go out with anyone who puts albumin in his hair. He looked surprised. I never use albumin, Camille, just egg whites. I'm sorry, I said. He looked so disappointed. You're serious, I said. May we, mademoiselle? It's not you or anything. My dad just doesn't want me hanging out with guys. He says he doesn't want me going on dates yet. Yeah? I think Gustav thought I was lying to him. It's true, I said. We don't have to do anything special. I mean, nobody goes on dates. He's skinny, but he has nice eyes, and he's smart, even though he's ignorant. We're both in honors chemistry, too. Okay, I said. We're lab partners now. I wonder what it would be like to kiss Jason Dolgy. I can't say I dream about it. How can I describe my father? It's like he's always standing in back of me. In eighth grade, I went to junior high camp at Lake Onagaming, just for three days. Daddy came along as a counselor. Kathy's dad volunteered, too. One day, the climbing instructors, they stay with the camp all summer, took us to a cliff. Not a big cliff, and for most of the way down, really just a slanted piece of rock. All afternoon, we rappelled down that cliff. I went three times. The two climbing instructors were at the top, and Dad was at the bottom. Nobody asked him to be at the bottom. He just was. He took over. He made sure everyone had their gear on right, their helmets on. He wouldn't let anyone stand around the place where people landed when they were repelling children or even adults. Move back. Move back a little. There. Dad talks all the time, and he wears people out. I could tell he was wearing Kathy's dad out. 
People don't like to be bossed around and told what to do. But Dad was in his element, voicing his opinions to Kathy's dad about kids and girls in junior high who wear skimpy two-piece bathing suits and act like sluts. That morning, we had been on a climbing wall on one of the cabins. Kathy's dad went to the top, but my dad didn't even try. That's when he started taking over in his panicky way. He doesn't like heights, so he didn't repel either. But he worked it out by deputizing himself climbing instructor number three, Sir Edmund Hillary. Why does Dad always want to control everything, I asked my mother once. She said that when she first knew him, she liked it because it made her feel protected, but that later she just felt trapped. I don't know if she realized she hadn't answered my question. Last year, Dad is sweaty from playing basketball and inflated with anger, his face an overripe tomato ready to split. You're too young to go to a dance. I'm 15. Too young. Practically everyone I know is going with someone. You're not everybody. You're my daughter, and I don't want you acting like the rest of those girls. What do you mean, like the rest? I've seen them. They're like little sluts, putting on makeup. So I have to wait how long? A year? No. I can't go to a dance when I'm a junior in high school? No. When then? When I'm 18? When I say you can. When I go to college, is that when? Don't get smart with me. When I go to college, just how are you going to stop me? I'll go to college with you if I have to. You want to keep me all to yourself. Yes, his blue eyes bulge. Well, doesn't that make you some kind of pervert? That's when he hits me. Really gets his weight into it. One instant I'm by the kitchen counter, close to the blender. In the next, I'm across the room, my head smack against the handle of a drawer, the world pulsing in and out. I start to cry, and the twins come in and start to cry. But Martha shoes them out of the kitchen, and I hear a door close at the back of the house. My father looks down at me, stricken. He stoops, and I jerk away, but I can't get off the floor. He folds me in his arms in his stinky, sweaty T-shirt. I hate being enclosed like this, having my arms pinned to my sides. It makes me panicky, and I start to breathe hard. Daddy, Daddy, please. I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Why did you make me do that? Don't make me do that anymore. Why did you do that? Don't make me do that anymore, he says over and over as he rocks me, my arms pinned to my sides. Daddy, I won't. Please, please let me get up, I croak. I'm choking. I think I'm going to be sick. He gets up quickly. His sweat is all over me, like dog slobber. I go around him, out the screen door. I don't go to school for three days, until the black and blue are nearly gone. If knocking me across the kitchen was the worst thing my father ever did, I suppose it's only fair to put down the best thing, too, which was to give me a telescope for my birthday and help me focus in on the moon and Jupiter and Saturn. I love him the most when I think of standing next to him on warm summer nights, taking turns looking through the telescope. He's an airplane mechanic for United, and for the last couple of years he's been working on a mechanical engineering degree. He loves anything that requires precision. One night he explained the Doppler effect to me, which I've read about since in astronomy books. The Doppler effect has to do with the frequency at which an observer receives waves, say sound or light waves. If the source of the waves is approaching you, the waves come closer and closer together. For instance, 
Picture yourself on Route 18. Elvis is driving toward you in his Cadillac convertible with his band in the back seat, and they're getting down about how Elvis has a hunk of burning love he wants to give some lucky girl. As he approaches, his song gets more high-pitched, and the hunks come faster and faster, as if you were hearing a record slowly speeded up from 33 and a third RPMs to 78. As he whizzes past you, the song hits its climax, so to speak, and gradually goes back from 78 to 33 and a third. This has never actually happened to me on Route 18. On Route 18, Elvis is always sitting beside me in my little convertible sports car, and when he sings, he sounds normally passionate, for Elvis anyway, because he is a stationary source for the sound. Off Route 18, though, life seems to go by me like a Doppler effect one where the frequency speeds up like crazy for a few weeks and then slows down for months and finally moves to the beat of a paralytic drummer. It wasn't the smack in the face that was the worst part of when Dad attacked me. It was having my arms pinned. I get scared to death about that. Even when I was little and my mother used to tuck me in, if she'd lean on the bed with both her hands planted by my elbows so I couldn't move my arms, I'd get panicked and I wanted to scream. I have a memory. It must be from when I was two or three. I think that I've come home from the grocery store with my mother and that I've been a perfect little beast. I think I wanted something at the checkout counter, and when she said no, I screamed. Or maybe I just threw a temper tantrum at home. The next thing I remember is this big old red couch we used to have, which is scratchy because the fabric is sculpted, and some is rough and stands up from the rest. I'm on the couch, and I'm screaming, and Mommy takes a pillow and puts it over my mouth and pushes down on it with all her might. She pushes me down into the couch cushion. I can't move. I can't even struggle or breathe. It's very dark. The pillow is molded to me, around my face, my arms, even my mouth. No matter how hard I strain, I cannot move. The only thing that's moving is my mind, and it's getting ready to explode from the pressure of trying to move my arms. Then the pillow comes away, and there's Mommy, like a white sheet with eyes painted on it. I lie there, a gaping fish, unable for an instant to move my arms or breathe. Not long ago, I told my mother, I remembered this. It's just your imagination, she said sharply. It never happened. Children can't remember back that far. Then why am I always so scared when my arms get pinned? Linda, she says, what a hateful thing to say. She's mad, not sorry. So at first I think maybe she really didn't do it. If she had, wouldn't I see something in her eyes? Some kind of guilt or regret? I love the song Route 66 and wish Route 18 had its own song. I'd like to make one up, but I can't seem to do it. I came across Route 66 when I was six or seven and Mom and Dad were screaming at each other in the bedroom. That's when they were trying to hide their hatred from me. The yelling made all the walls in the house vibrate. Later that summer, they were screaming in the kitchen, the living room, everywhere, and I was hearing words like slut and whore for the first time. Anyway, I was looking at a blank TV screen. Usually, I couldn't move when they got that way. I was afraid of what would happen if they noticed me, and I would strain to hear what they were saying because I thought it might be about me, that maybe I'd caused their anger. But that day, I don't know why, I turned on the TV very low. 
I was flicking around on the channel changer, and I hit one of those cable stations that just show old TV shows like Leave it to Beaver and The Andy Griffith Show. I saw these two guys jumping into a convertible sports car, a little thing that looked like an elongated Volkswagen bug. Route 66 was playing in the background. I liked those two guys, Martin Milner and George Maharis, and I just rode away with them. They had adventures wherever they stopped, but they could always keep moving, and as long as they did, they were okay. Driving was the purest, most pleasant thing they did. I don't know why they ever stopped except for gas and sleep, and because it was a TV program and something's got to happen. I could have just watched them drive endlessly, and I imagined myself on the road with them, sometimes in the back seat, sometimes up front. Whatever kind of car they had, it's the one that I drive on Route 18. In black and white, their car was light-colored, and maybe that's why my own is almost always yellow, a flying banana that has a black ball on the end of the stick shift. Around this time, I got into making maps. I'd draw imaginary countries and cattle ranches on typing paper, and I decided why not make my own highway. I'd show my maps to Mom and Dad if they were having a good day, and they'd smile at me and tell me how good my maps were. I'd draw maps until there was no more paper in the house, and nobody complained. For Christmas, Daddy got me a Rand McNally Road Atlas of the United States. He really liked the idea of a daughter who drew maps. He said it showed that I would grow up to be a scientist or an engineer. The road atlas had a map of the United States as a whole and one for each state. I drew Route 18 right into the road atlas. It took me two weeks. My road meanders through every state in the Union and goes through some of them twice. It starts in Hoboken, goes through New York City on the way to Montauk Point, and then travels in a loop in a crescent to Cape Cod. From there it goes up to New England and back south all the way to the Florida Keys, where the islands are connected by some of the world's longest suspension bridges. Then it jogs back up through Georgia and winds its way like a drugged snake, north to south, back and forth, over the rest of the country. I tried to figure out how long it was once, and I came up with about 35,000 miles. I used a string to trace it, and then measured the inches on the string. The speed limit on Route 18 varies. On some stretches, you can go as fast as you want. I started out driving it with Martin Milner and George Maharis, but I've had various companions, and my favorite is Elvis Presley, when we sing along with his songs on the radio. I like driving with Eddie Rabbit, too. Step-parents are supposed to be more dangerous than real ones. I've read books about it. Because your genetic parents have more of a genetic investment in you, the theory goes, they are much more likely to take care of you. But for step-parents, you're just a competitor for resources they'd like to give their own kids. Step-parents are the ones you've got to watch out for, just like in that movie, The Stepfather, or in fairy tales like Hansel and Gretel or Cinderella. In my life, this theory has turned out to be baloney. The adults who are really dangerous are the ones who see you as a walking genetic legacy. Martha's nicer to me than my real mom, and Leonard's a jerk, but he's not dangerous. One day I came home from school and Leonard was in the driveway, putting a new license plate on the back of his car. He crouched, twisting his screwdriver. His 36-inch jeans had slid way down, which they do when he squats, and he was flashing the neighborhood a hairy half-white moon. You'd think there'd be a point of no return right about there, an event horizon where his pants would slide off altogether. 
How does a man's butt stay so skinny when his belly hangs over his belt like a squishy weather balloon? I'd rather live dangerously than have any of Leonard's genes. Then there's my father, who loves me, but knocked me across the kitchen, and my mother, who loves me too, but tried to off me with a pillow. Of course, children aren't easy. I can see how, as a mother, your kid might drive you so crazy that for an instant you might lose control and want to kill her. I have four kids, two at each house to babysit, and they get on my nerves. I love them, but then they're not mine. And now I'm sharing my rooms with three little girls. I don't feel like strangling them, but sometimes, if I could just have a room to myself, it would be even better than driving alone on Route 18. I don't ever want to have kids. I don't ever want to feel like killing them. In November of my sophomore year, Dad decides the whole psychiatrist adventure has been bad for me. I stop seeing Dr. Gruel, and Dad takes my Paxil away. He says the stuff is poison, all kinds of bad side effects. Besides, I don't have to be depressed, he says, if I don't want to be. Being happy is just a decision, and I have to quit moping around and make it. It starts one morning after breakfast when I go to the medicine cabinet, and Dad's in the bathroom, barring the door, the little orange cylinder wrapped in his fist. Dad, I need that stuff. I don't want you to get addicted. Dad, it's medicine. I'll crash without it. I can't pry it out of his hands. He has all the virtue of a parent who has discovered cocaine in his daughter's dresser. Tough love, I can hear him thinking. Gotta give that girl tough love. Like most people, he assigns himself dramatic parts and gets caught up in them. That week I came down like an airplane whose wings had fallen off. You can't go off Paxil cold. The world dopplers to a crawl, a definite redshift as the stars and planets recede in the distance. I can't think. I can't remember. I'm first chair clarinet and band, and I can barely move my fingers over the keys. My head aches so bad the roots of my hair hurt. The band director's baton moves like a baseball bat, and I think my head is going to roll off my shoulders. I can't tell when the shock from going off the drug starts and the depression begins. I just want to sit in my bedroom and stare at the wall, and that is what I would do if people would let me alone, but they pursue me relentlessly, do the dishes, change the baby's diaper. I drag myself around the house at my mother's and father's, wondering how much more it could hurt to just plunge a bread knife into my heart and stop the whole thing. I pop Advil for the headaches and get just as much caffeine as I can. At home I drink coffee, and at school Gustav helps me out, bringing me an extra couple bucks each day to buy Coke and Mountain Dew and Dr. Pepper, and it helps a little, I think. And Gustav is so sweet, keeps me from crashing through the earth into some lower level of darkness. Dante knew what he was talking about, the ninth level of hell being made of ice, where everything stops frozen. What will I do when the other phase starts, and I'm jitterbugging around the house, up all hours, putting my room one way and then the other, talking like a machine gun? What then? I hold myself together through an internal system of ropes and pulleys that keep me from flying apart or crashing into myself like an imploding beer can. I eventually nag my mother into letting me stay over at Kathy's house. It's impossible for her to withstand me when I get like this because I don't let up, can't. And next week I'm likely to be comatose, so I'm making the most out of my energy while I have it. I've even told her that I'm going to a dance, the winter formal, and since my mother can take anything but pressure, she collapses on that too, and even gets into it, gets me a dress, like she remembers I'm 16 and she's my mother, and maybe we're both missing something though she knows my father is going to be hopping mad if he ever finds out, 
and she'll be in all kinds of trouble. And Leonard hates it when I'm distracting her and she's spending money on me. But like I said, when she knows I'm going, she gets into it, even helps me pick out a dress and pays for it, black and sort of slinky, perfect for a winter formal, which is a little formal, a prom warm-up. I've even told her that Gustav and Kevin are going to pick us up at Kathy's house at 745. Kathy and I have been getting ready for a while, baths, makeup, hiding out in Kathy's bedroom, ready to make a grand appearance. I help Kathy put her hair up. She always likes to wear it up in some kind of elaborate concoction of twists and turns that she gets from this book, something like 101 Ways to Twist Your Hair Around. She has fine blonde hair and strands of it always get loose, so she has that partially disheveled look that boys drool over. Now one strand bobs around her eyelash, and her blue eyes make her look impish. She's really beautiful. I have a big Armenian nose like my mom, and my hair is long. I just brush it out. Kathy says I look like an Indian princess. I don't know about the princess part, but I feel good when I look at the two of us in the mirror. Better than mortal man deserves, she says as we gaze at ourselves. She likes to steal lines from movies. That one's from The Terminator. Look at the lovely ladies, Kathy's dad says when we emerge from the bedroom side of the house. He makes a big deal out of us. So does Kathy's mom. It's corny, but it makes me feel good. And I can feel tears coming to my eyes that people can be so generous as to spend affection as if it weren't in short supply. I wonder if Gustav will want to kiss me. I don't even want to think about what it would be like to run my fingers through Gustav's hair. I'm afraid some of his spikes might break off. But when Kevin and Gustav come to the door, they have been transformed too. Gustav's stalagmite hair is gone, though it's still bleached out and the black roots show. I got tired of egg whites, he mumbles. No, his mother made him do it, Kevin grins, while Gustav scowls to hide his embarrassment. The dance is in the school gym. Colored lights, punch, parents chaperoning, kids hanging out in the parking lot, talking, or standing at the sidelines of the gym. I dance with Gustav, Kevin, some of the other guys ask me. It's not like I'm that attached to anyone. I am free, and it's nice. Some of the girls are in incredible dresses. A lot of rich kids go to our high school. They drive their BMWs to school and keep their golf clubs in the trunks. And most of them have that superior attitude that so often goes with money. But tonight they can't irritate me, and I enjoy watching them in their beautiful gowns and tuxedos. It's almost as if they have their own formal going on, one of the cogs spinning around the dance floor in a particular part of the gym. The black kids have theirs, the Hispanic kids theirs, though the groups do mix some. Kathy and I are part of the lower-to-middling group, the girls jiggling around the dance floor in something close to 50 or $60, or homemade, our own regenerating wheel of couples. Gustav isn't a bad dancer. He's wiry and a little tight when he moves. I like to think I'm lith. I may be kidding myself, but I don't care. When I dance with Gustav, I don't have to worry about how I look. He's a comfortable person to be around. Will he kiss me tonight, or will he seize up? In junior high, we timed Amy Herwood and John Novotny to see how long they could kiss each other, and they went for over 90 seconds until one of the playground teachers came over and saw what was going on. They got expelled. It was just a stunt, of course, but I've often wondered how it must have felt to press your lips to someone else's for that long. I don't know when Gustav is going to get the chance to kiss me. 
When he and Kevin drop off Kathy and me, I don't suppose we can all just stand outside the door kissing each other. About halfway through the dance, I decide it's time to give Gustav some encouragement. It's awfully hot in here, I say, after one of the dances. Maybe we should get some fresh air. Okay, he says. Outside it's cold and a little foggy. We walk out in the parking lot, and I'm surprised there are so many people, some just talking, some kissing, as if no one else on earth existed. They know they're under observation, though. High school is a big drama, and out here some are playing to the crowd saying, Look what I've got, or look what I can do. I'm a man. I'm a woman. Yippee! Let's walk out on the grass, I say. Gustav and I walk toward the tennis courts over the field where the girls' soccer team practices and plays its games. The ground is hard and the grass is brittle with cold. A maple tree casts a long black shadow against the floodlit ground. Beneath the tree it is both light and dark at the same time, and I want Gustav to press me up against the bark and kiss me for ninety seconds. He doesn't, though. He just stands around flat-footed, and I'm almost ready for him to start scuffing his toes in the dirt and saying, Gosh! He's getting the signal all right. He just doesn't know whether he ought to believe it. He's not dense. He just doesn't want to make a mistake, and I take that for politeness. So I put my arms around his neck and kiss him. At first, his spine is rigid as a broom handle, but then he's kissing me, and my heart is banging against my ribcage, and I feel the earthworms waking up beneath my feet, fooled into thinking it's spring. Gustav and Kevin drop us off at Kathy's, and we stand around on the porch for a while, and Kevin gives Kathy a chaste peck on the cheek, and Gustav, taking the cue, does the same to me. I feel lighter than I have in months, even without the Paxel. I'm not stupid enough to think I'm in love with Gustav or he with me, but I feel relaxed and happy with him, and I can't think of another male that would apply to. Kathy's dad makes her feel that way. It's because she knows what to expect of him. It's after twelve, and he is up and waiting for us. He's sitting at the kitchen table, reading a magazine when we come in the door. He smiles at us, though he looks a little uneasy, and says, How was the dance? Kathy gives him the standard answer, Oh, it was okay. Then he looks at me. Your father called Linda about half an hour ago. He's coming to pick you up. But I'm spending the weekend with my mother, I say, more to myself than anyone else. I can feel tears coming, and I don't want to cry. But why would my mother have told him? I can almost hear the conversation over the phone. Where's Linda, he keeps demanding. She just collapses whenever he starts grilling her, and Leonard never wants me around anyway. He wouldn't encourage her to stand up to Dad. It's always just easiest for her to give in. Was he mad, I want to ask, but it's too humiliating. Besides, I can feel his rage moving up the highway. His daughter has given him the slip, gone to a dance, planned to spend the night with a friend, and it'll be the last time, he'll tell me, the last time you ever pull a stunt like that. Kathy takes me back to her bedroom, and I do start to cry. She just keeps passing me the Kleenex. I can't even change out of my dress. It would be better if I could get into some jeans and a sweatshirt, the kind of clothes that are not likely to rouse my father's ire, but when he sees the slinky dress with the slit in the side, modest as it is, he'll talk about teenage sluts for days. How he's not going to let his daughter become one, despite her obvious desire to display herself. And maybe tomorrow, when he starts to think about it more, works himself up more and more, he'll belt me. 
Just smack me across the living room or the kitchen again, and it'll be finals week, and then what will I do? What lie this time? I picture myself on the floor in a kitchen corner, my face throbbing, my father all repentant, bending down to pick me up. And that's when I ram the bread knife into his guts, the long serrated one, and I just keep twisting and sawing and won't let go. Kathy gets me out of the dress into a sweatshirt and jeans. Why don't you call your mom, Kathy says. He's got no right to get you. This isn't his week. Maybe your mom doesn't even know he's coming to get you. I realize I'm so disappointed Mom has told him about the dance that I don't care what happens to me. Kathy says, You can't buy into your dad's crap about you. Don't let that negative stuff get inside you. But I have. I'm like a stuffed turkey, filled to the throat with my father and mother's negative crap. When Dad comes to the front door, there is no scene. Kathy's dad opens the door, smiles, says hi. My dad smiles back, and I scoot out like a black cat, slipping under a garage door just before it shuts. Not a word passes between Dad and me for about ten minutes. I just hear the sounds of traffic, the car's engine, the heater blowing. Then he starts slowly, about how not telling him about the dance was like lying to him, about how my mother used to lie to him, and now I'm doing it, just like she did. He doesn't ask me what I wore, but he will. He's slow, like a machine that takes rock and grinds it into fine powder. He's got time all weekend, and he'll use it. He's studying to be an engineer, after all, and engineers are thorough, methodical types. We pass farmhouses on the outskirts of Trenton, fields bare and exhausted. My father hasn't shaved today. He often skips on the weekends. The lower half of his face almost disappears in the dark car but his eyes and temples go white in the gleam of lights. I can't look at him. I can't even look at the road. I close my eyes, and after a while, the texture of the road changes. I can hear and feel the wheels bite into a rougher grade of asphalt. I look, and a wheat field nods in the slow evening breeze. We pass a cornfield, and the big, flat leaves slap against each other like knives. There is rain in the air. No oncoming traffic. In the distance, heat lightning flashes. And among it, like subaudible thunder, my father rumbles away. Signs flash by. Route 18. Speed limit 75. The steering wheel vibrates beneath my hands. The clean, heavy summer air brushes my hair back and blows through my pores. I head into the lightning and reach for the radio. I love a rainy night. Showers wash all my cares away I wake up to a sunny day Cause I love a rainy night Yeah, I love a rainy night Well, I love a rainy night That was Craig Burnthal reading his story, Route 18. And wasn't it just fascinating how our author was so able to get into the mind and persona of Linda, our troubled teenager who, really through no fault of her own, was thrown into the middle of a really difficult divorce. As we heard, 
By law, she was required to reside in each of her separated parents for two weeks at a time. And that's why she so desperately tried to escape her agonizing confinement by traveling down that imaginary highway of hers, the one she called Route 18. Friends, as you can see, our author tonight is an extraordinarily good writer who's also a professor at Fresno State University. Some years ago, it was my extreme good fortune to be able to take a couple of wonderful classes from him, classes that I enjoyed and from which I learned a lot. Not only is he a professor of English, he's also a Shakespeare scholar as well as an expert on law. Craig has written two books, Perfection in Bad Acts, in which tonight's story is included, and The Trial of Man, Christianity and Judgment in the World of Shakespeare. We've had Craig on a number of times, and each time he seems to get better and better. That's why we hope he'll write many more stories for us in years to come. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read program again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our author will be Janice Stevens. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story. Until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read.